Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Nate G, and today I had a conversation with Gal Krubener, the co-founder and CEO of Pagaya Technologies. Pagaya uses AI to improve the credit evaluation and approval process in its mission to bring financial opportunity to more people. It's building out a network of investors, lenders, and their customers as it helps to reshape and modernize legacy credit underwriting systems. Pagaya directs institutional investments to the consumer loans originated from partner lenders in its AI-driven network. The company's recent accolades include a Consumer Lending Innovation Award in 2023 from the FinTech Breakthrough Awards program, which recognizes the top companies and products across FinTech today. Gal and I discuss Pagaya's origins and the underwriting practices that it aims to disrupt. We discuss how Pagaya thinks about risk while also increasing the range of borrowers accessing credit. We cover AI's role at Pagaya and beyond, and we go through some of his takeaways from Pagaya's IPO in 2021. It was great to host Gal today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Gal. It's nice to see you, and welcome to the Warden FinTech Podcast. Hi, Nate. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here today. Absolutely. I thought to start us off, we'd just dive into a bit on you and your background. Could you tell us about you, your journey, and what led you to found Pagaya in the first place? Definitely. So my name is Gal Krubinel. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pagaya, one of three founders that started the business. All of them are still here in the business with us. We started the business in 2016. Back then in Tel Aviv, I moved to the US in 2018. And I think the real motivation behind why to build Pagaya and how to design it, which we'll talk a lot about today, was really the, the, the shocking fact that while the United States has the most advanced financial infrastructure in the world by tenfolds, and when you think about it, you have banks in the trillions and capital markets in the trillions too, still 42% of people that are asking for credit are either get denied or not getting the credit they deserve. So I think the combination of the so powerful thing that exists here, but still the lack of ability to provide that solution really brought me and my co-founders to ask the question of how tech, particularly, would change that outcome and help people receive the credit they really deserve in a very different way that has been done before. Got it. Understood. And so can you now help us paint a picture of what the company does and how it leverages AI to go about assessing credit risk in conjunction with banks' traditional underwriting? So how does Pagaya change the game? So the mission, as you said, is rather straightforward and simple. It's really to help different lenders provide more credit opportunities for more people more often. And when you think about that mission, there are actually many different ways that you can attack this very massive, gigantic problem in the US. And one of the things that we did very different is the way we approached it. So if you think about FinTech 1.0, they really were focusing about how do we create a digital bank? How do we create a digital lending? So anywhere from Lending Club back in the days and so far, it was really a revolution in the way you could access credit through the web. And when we came to Live, which was a few years after, so all of that started in 06, 07, 08, hmm. we actually came and started in 2016, we saw that the real gap 
or the next layer of solution you can do is not actually in the B2C business, not really in the how clients are interacting with lenders, but in the flow of the ability to help these lenders being able to approve more people more often. So if you think about it from a 30,000 foot and very holistically, both banks and fintechs and others are facing the same problem, which is they have hard time approving many of these customers because of regulatory capital regimes, because of the very high cost of acquisition it takes to bring these customers online. And if you build a machine that has the ability to take that flow of applications that are coming through their door, doesn't matter if it's a fintech or a bank, a B2C businesses, and you had them convert just 2% more, 5% more, 10% more, hopefully 20% more as we do it today, your impact about the full society and the full availability of credit as an ecosystem is very massive. It can be as big as 20% of the full industry. So while everyone went for the B2C type of solution, we thought about building an infrastructure, a network, an AI network. It will allow these lenders to get connected to us. And through that, being able to approve many more customers. And to your point, Nate, it really many of them, many of these declines are coming because of hard cuts in the banks, call it the 640. ICO, which is a magic number in the US that distinguish, especially on the personal loan, in between um, subprime to a prime or near prime bowel. And when you take these things from an AI perspective, it's just becoming another parameter. And while an interesting and important input, you can still utilizing very strong AI, big data machine learning type of algorithms, utilizing a lot of data that is available, especially with our network as we work with all of them, to spot many borrowers that actually should be approved for credit while they will have been denied in the traditional credit system. And maybe the last point I will make for this question is I actually want to use an example here. And think about a, a person, let's give him a name, Jane, that is actually going now into a dealership in the US and his information is processing through the dealership lending systems, being pinging one of our lenders through an API, let it be LI for the example, LI Bank, which is the biggest subprime auto lender in the US. After LI decided that this is not for them for various different reasons, as we spoke before, that application is being transferred online to Pagaya. And we give an answer if we will be willing to provide that consumer with the loan in less than half a second. Now, when we provide that approval, we actually bring in the AI capabilities to the front and we bring the funding with it that is funded through institutional capital that we have before. From Jane's perspective, he or she sees that as their own loan from Eli, and they don't have a clue that Pagaya is behind the scenes making that loan and providing that because the servicing thereafter and the documents and everything is going to be LI Bank. So you created a very unique win-win-win situation where the borrower gets more approvals, the lender get more borrowers to be their customers, and the institutional investors behind us have an access to a very unique flow that only LI has to be able to fund assets. Everyone is happy, 
And that's how the ecosystem and the machine continue to work. I see. So among these people, like your example, that may not have traditionally been approved for a loan, but thanks to Bagaya, are now approved. I'd like to hear a little bit more on what types of client situations or data would allow for such consumers to gain access to this loan, while the same clients might have otherwise been rejected under traditional underwriting standards due to a low FICO score or otherwise. So the most common things will be that these people tend to be denied because of one event that happened in the history. There are many banks in the US that once you were bankrupt once, you're actually not going to be eligible to be a creditor um, in their systems. Now, when you utilize the AI and the big data, you have something very different, which is the time series of all of these credit history. So the ability to look on someone and to say, yeah, maybe 17 years ago or nine years ago, he actually was in bankruptcy but you can very see the advanced of what happens within time. Another way to think about it is if I'm coming to you, Nate, and asking you to provide me, provide me credit with a regression model, you will ask me, okay, what's your FICO today? And let's assume I say 680. You will agree with me that if I will tell you I was 760 and was deteriorated to a 720, 700, and 680, you will have a one view on me. Hmm. Or if I will come and will tell you, actually, I'm 640, but just three years ago, I was a 500, you will have a very different view. Mm-hmm. So I just gave you a few examples of how more sophisticated models that have the ability to take into consideration multiple parameters, such as how many open credit lines I had a year ago versus two years ago versus three years ago, or what was my FICO throughout time, actually could get to a much better ability in assessment my credit history or my credit behavior, rather than a hard-cut rules or regression-based rules that are really taking a snapshot as of today and trying to assume the future. And so looking back at these past couple years of Pagaya's growth, have you sort of managed to stay in keeping with the original mission of extending credit to these consumers who traditionally lacked access, or like in your example, to consumers that might have been denied for one incident in the past? I guess I'm looking for an idea of incremental borrowers that the platform has, has led to. So the best way to put it is that fortunately or unfortunately, people who are getting denied for credit are very good Americans that have a great salaries, a strong discipline. But still, if they are not like very wealthy compared to the, to the income of the states, are actually not having that easy way to get access to credit. So while there is a big population that is getting denied, it's still a very good type of borrowers. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as you can imagine, there is a lot of financial inclusion that is part of the discussions that actually bring different type of minorities or communities that historically hasn't been able to access to credit to not having able to be able to access now. So it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg Mm-hmm. And by the way, another example of like one of the biggest wealth gaps in the U.S. has actually been created because of the lack of ability from African-Americans for many, many years to be able to take mortgages on their properties. So what you see is that one leads to another. And, and the financial inclusion is important because you are cutting that type of um, phenomena or gaps. So if you mm-hmm. think about the population that the guy is approving, 70% of the Pagaya loan applications were actually denied 
by another lender. And 50% of the approvals are actually below 660 credit score that we spoke, like around the mm. 640, 660 is the magic number in the US. And then 55% of the issued loans are low to medium income people. And maybe the last point I will make is that 36% of approval represent black or Latinx consumers. So as you can imagine, or as you can see with the numbers, we are speaking about a very important impact for the financial ecosystem in general, financial inclusion mission in particular. And, and what was striking or not striking at all, but coming back is like performance of these loans are exactly the same. Okay. Then you ask the question of like, what's the systems missing? Why so many years of historical performance, et cetera, still creating these biases? But I think these questions are maybe from a different podcast in a different place. And, 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 and just to give you the flavor of where we are standing, what's happening in the U.S. No, absolutely. And it's awesome to hear about the progress that you're working towards in the realm of financial inclusion. It also naturally leads to some questions about risk. So how does it work such that the risk is shifted away from banks or lenders? And what you've described is a separation of the relationship from the asset. Could you explain how this model really works from a risk shifting perspective? So if, if you would ask me what was the biggest innovation of Pagaya, was actually this. Everyone okay. asks, what is the secret sauce? Secret sauce is the AI. So the AI is great. It's very unique because it gets a lot of information from different lenders that no one else has. But we didn't invent the AI. We just use it rather well in a very sophisticated environment such as finance. But one of the biggest innovations, among many others, was exactly what you've mentioned. And you outlined that very nicely, I would say. We decoupled the power relationship or the servicing relationship from the asset itself. And what we learned is that when you do that, you have many more possibilities that are being getting open. Because institutional clients care only about the asset and the lenders care only about the relationships. So the optimum place for the world and for the underwriting is actually when you take that combined asset, decoupled it, put part of it where it needs to be, which is lower cost of capital, especially from that type of borrowers, because regulation is less heavy on the asset managers, pension funds, etc., rather than the depository banks, which the US government or the regulator made them to be very safe on the one hand side, but on the other side, they're not actually providing the lending they should with the money that is behind them. So it's a little bit of double-edged swords of like you create very stable ecosystem from a financial perspective, and therefore having a very low likelihood of a too big to fail type of, of a bank, but in the same time, a very important piece of lending to a, to a communities, which needs to be done by the banks, is actually harder and harder for them, although they really want to do that. Now, on the other hand side, the way we manage to do that, and that's why the banks loves it so much, is they manage to continue to serve the very loyal customers that they have. Mm. And to be able to say more yes to their requests rather than a no, while not hurting their RWA, the risk-weighted averages, or the CISOL regulations, or many other things that would drive them usually to have a higher percentage of decline for the bonds. 
So regardless of the risk shifting, the arrangement works such that the lenders are still able to assess and confront and take on the risk of whatever relationships they have. I just want to make sure I understand that the risk isn't shifted in a manner that misaligns incentives or creates undue, potentially unforeseen risks through the system at large. Yes. Yeah, so, so the way to think about it is you have like double checks and balances. But the banks are actually the lenders at record. So from their perspective, in front of their regulators, et cetera, to show that the losses are muted and to show that the risk is being captured properly, they are at the end of the day, the ones who are adopting the models per se. And then the other side of it, which is institutional capital, they are doing a lot of due diligence too, because they are at the end, the, the, the risk takers from an asset perspective. So a lot of due diligence and a lot of ability to understand what AI does and the performance of it is coming from that world. So to some degree, we are getting actually additional layer of checks. And obviously, Pagaya in the middle do most of that, but still being compliant with two different sets of very strong counterparties that are looking to do the right thing for the actual outcome. To go a little deeper on this, can you talk more about Pagai's relationship with banks insofar as collaboration and information sharing goes? And if there are ever any tensions that arise regarding this or regarding the credit risk technology that banks might be building out themselves in-house? So we don't think about our model as only for us to use. We have many banks who are coming in and asking, hey, can I do A-B testing? Can I look on what you do? Can I improve mine? And when, and, and when your mission is getting more credit to more people, it's actually aligned with your mission. So mm-hmm. you're like, sure, however we can help you. The interesting part is the other way around happening too. One of the things that we started without and now we have with is the decline reason. The decline reason that a bank has and sharing with you would give you a lot of color if you're looking on the risk correctly or not as part of your input to the models. So... Think about it that historically, they didn't provide it in the beginning because you always have this friction in the beginning of like how much information I'm going to give or not. If we show them that this is helping their relationship with us and to approve more customers, they're actually excited to share with us their historical 20 years of learning, of hmm. how auto loans are behaving, how the recoveries are happening. It's hard to explain how much collaboration there is between our, what is being called in our world, the research department, and what's being called in their world, the risk department. But, but the collaboration is very high because all of us understand that it's for the greater good of both of us. And the incentive in Pagaya and in the bank partnership goes this way that if one is earning, the other is earning. Hmm. So there is definitely a marching towards a common goal, which aligns with the mission, mission of Pagaya. So that's our day-to-day. Hmm. And, and that's really how we think about it from that perspective. That leads me well into my next question, which was actually about Pagaya's research department that you've alluded to. And I imagine it might have pretty good insights on borrowers, loan performance, default rates, whatever it might be. I know you mentioned in particular once the company's research into interest rates impact on monthly payment sizes, for instance, and thus on default rates. So how has this or other research contributed to the development of Pagaya's models or maybe of the dynamic pricing for lenders? So, so the superpower of the research department with the models lies into the fact that we have a multiple data for multiple lenders. 
when you ask the question of how many people see flow from other lenders, the answer is almost none because they are competitors to each other. Mm. But when we decouple this relationship that we spoke in the beginning from the asset, no one is viewing us as a competitor because we're not. We're never going to have a B2C business per se. Another way to think about it, which actually an investor told me, is he told me about his friend that was having a catalog business. He was sending catalog for different companies. And only when he went to different catalog companies and asked them for the data of who opened a catalog and who didn't, he knew to merge all these data together mm. to be able to say, okay, these people are actually reading catalogs but don't like mine. These people do not like catalogs at all. I will never send it to them. So there is a very strong, powerful network effect that is actually happening when you have the ability to look on the same picture from a different vantage points. Mm. So how it works in practice, it, let's go to 2021, September, hot days, everything, cheap money, happy, happy. IPOs are the highest ever. Every time there is IPOs are the highest ever, always know something bad going to so we starting to look on the data and we start to see that the performance of loans, early delinquencies from different type of um, channels is actually starting to rise. Now, if we had only one channel, we said, okay, maybe our model is wrong. Maybe our marketing is wrong. Maybe it's only a specific population in a specific place. But when you get the same phenomena from four, five, seven, ten different lenders, very quickly you stop and you say, okay, Something is happening here. That superpower, that super data, combined with the, let's give the credit to the people uh, that deserve it, with the superpower of our research department and our risk department, is actually what is allowing us to react quicker, to be more relevant, and to use data that actually creates a better outcome. So the superpower is really just the sheer scale that you benefit from in dealing with so many different lenders who in themselves wouldn't be able to see the data that other lenders have. It really just creates this unique position for you and for Pagaya to understand trends about borrowing patterns and, and the like. Correct. And to your earlier comment, it's much easier to go into a different product or to do it with a Pagaya when we have all of that massive data rather than a bank in the U.S. trying to build a new Prime program while he did all his life Prime. I would even be as, as extreme, I would say, the amount of times banks are going into creating a new vertical product is very rare these days because the room for error that they have is very little. So when you think about buy, partner, build, mm -hmm. going to new credit, either verticals or segments, it's much easier to do in the partner way rather in the build or buy. And that's really what Pagai is offering for a value proposition. And then on the topic of new verticals or segments, what might be next? Have you considered moving beyond consumer credit into corporate lending, for instance, or other new focus areas? What's on the horizon for Pagaya? So let's start staying in the consumer space. In the consumer space, what you have is very strong standardized data, especially in the US. And therefore, it's very natural to continue to grow in these markets. Uh, we started from personal loan. Auto loan is already at scale. Where we're doing a few billions of dollars of that a year. Point of sale is something we have already very mature, well-known partners such as Klarna, and that's mm -hmm. going to be one of our next frontiers 
PNPL generally speaking in the US is growing a lot. And you see specifically point of sale as a big initiatives of the banks. Beyond that, you have solar home improvements and many others that are in the consumer credit, which that's what will be more my expectations from Pagaya as we think about the next few years. On a broader picture, the question is becoming to be, will you have enough standardized data, enough scale businesses, and enough easy to access operationally that you don't need to build all of that? And then unfortunately, the corporate world and few others is lagging behind because mainly it's not that big of a size versus others. It's in the $150-$250 billion on the SMEs rather than the trillions in the consumer. And the data is not as well organized such as that we have in the credit bureaus. So these gaps are actually a real thing that is harder to go after that. But mm-hmm. if you think about consumers, but not in the context of financials, in the context of insurance, in the context of renting or SFR, single family rents, you will find that these structural things actually exist there. A lot of data standardized, the actuary like data is very robust, many different insurance companies. So I would guess if I need that after going credit in consumers, we're actually going to have a consumer things which are above finance rather than having SMEs and different things in finance first. While it's less intuitive, if you look on the structural pieces of that, it actually makes more sense. I wanted to also ask you about the macroeconomic backdrop of the past couple of years, especially just with interest rates as elevated as they've been. So how impactful has the macro environment been for Pagaya itself? Is it a net positive given what you do and given that Many lenders might be pulling back to a certain degree. And if so, do you think that this can hold up over time if the high rate environment remains? So so from my perspective, the macro created two very strong tailwinds for Pagaya. One of them is banks pulling back. If we all remember what happened with SVB in March and the scares that all of us had, that many more banks in the US might um, not be there the weekend after. So I think the big message there was that the ability of banks to be able to provide consumer credit in the years to come, especially because of the liquidity constraints, but not less than that because of the regulations that will come thereafter, is what we experienced in Basel III after mm. eight, is actually going to push them to get things more out of their balance sheet and to provide for partners or business models like ourselves a better in to be able to help them do so. And the other piece of it is what I call the shift from PE to PC, so private equity to private credit. Mm -hmm. So in a very low interest rate environment, your equity usually is doing better. But when you're thinking and speaking about higher interest rate environment, the private credit is more interesting. So you have these two phenomena that are tailwinds for Pagaya. And as you speak about $500 billion that has been raised in the last few years for penetrating into the private credit. There are not that many operators like ourselves with the right infrastructure, capabilities, intelligence, AI, risk, compliance, to be able to capture that opportunity. And we are really in the sweet spot um, from that perspective. Now, macro in general has some negative impacts on Pagaya, on our so-called conversion rates and the returns that we need to provide to the, to the assets. But because we have a, such a strong financial leadership, 
we have managed to weather the storm in a unique way. And we are continuing to grow, even in these environments, um, at a, a very interesting rates. While, as you said, most of the lenders are actually pulling back, reducing their production and sending away many more applications to be able to be evaluated. On the topic of private credit, is there anything you can discuss on the current state of institutional interest in consumer credit funds in particular, and how it might be evolving just given this, this macro environment that we've been in? So I, I think actually what happened rather nicely is that if you just open the newspapers, go 12, 18 months back when inflation picked up and delinquency started to go up, many people were like, okay, that's it. No, we're going to invest in consumer credit. Mm. Actually, what happened is the other way around. The fact that we didn't had a very strong rake in these type of markets has proven these markets to be more sustainable and stable than other would have experienced. So consumer credit in general as an appetite for private credit is actually going higher and higher. The issue with that is that you need to do it in the right scale and you need to do it with the right tools. So that's type of the things that everyone is going to be okay-ish, but few are going to be very good and few are going to be very bad. Mm. So, so you need to know what to stay away from and you need to know to work with partners that actually has the ability to assess risk in a way that you wouldn't. So moving on to our last few questions, you've been building a business in AI even years before AI went very mainstream, at least in the broader public in the past year or two with ChatGPT and similar tools. So how has this changed things for you and what's next at the intersection of AI and financial services or AI and fintech in particular? So I always say that ChatGDP is the biggest marketer of AI in the world. What they did is hard to explain. And I admire their ability to express what's the power of AI to the full public. The biggest impact, which is going to sound to you so silly, what I'm going to share right now, but it's actually a real, real lifetime example, is when you went to a chief credit officer or chief compliance officer of a big bank two years ago, you would say, AI, eh, I heard that story so many times. It's not very different. We have models too. Okay, we know what are we do. That particular chief credit officer or chief risk officer, I'm sure when they heard about ChatGDP, they went online. They played with ChatGDP. After they saw what could be the outcome of that and the power of that, their ability to say a sentence like that is a zero. They are now a bigger believer in the AI revolution like all of us together. So I think what it did more than anything, it showed to the skepticism a real example of how different it can be in a way that people can really be tangible with it. Mm -hmm. So it created a very strong motivation for people to play along rather than to be against. And if you think about it, new technologies are always going through this cycle of like, People that are getting hurt by that and at the beginning are very skeptics or saying what's going to be the bad outcomes until a, until a very impactful event like that is happening. I will never forget that I saw when I was younger, I was reading Popular Science. It's a magazine about science. And when I looked on Popular Science, they did a hundred years uh, 
version of it. And, and one of the things they did, they sent you the popular science versions of like 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago. One of the homepages were, now that we got cars, what's going to happen to human beings when they are going to travel in a crazy speed of 40 miles per hour? <laughs> and the skepticism back then where what's going to happen to the human beings when we're going to become moving to do cars rather than horses, right? I think it's the same story. The Chad GDP is, was still the best way to show people the power of AI and to get it into the understanding of every household in the world, which is more powerful than explaining everything. And the last point I will make, which I think it's a little bit less known or a little bit less widespread, which is coming from a person who is dealing with an AI like myself, the actual breakthrough of ChatGDP was not the models themselves. Mm-hmm. Like NPLs and, and, and that type of technology, and many people from the academy will tell you, for many, many years have existed, people know what they've done and what their capabilities. The way to make it easy for a user to use, and then to standardize the data in a way that you can get a very clear, concise answers, rather than just a theoretical exercise, was the breakthrough. So it's sometimes not even the model itself or the technology itself, but what you're doing with it, where are you approaching it, what's the data behind. It completely changed the course of the history. And regardless of ChatGPT, I mean, it's, it's clear that ChatGPT allows the public to view and sort of have some experience with AI and understand it from that perspective. But regardless of ChatGPT or similar tools, what do you think might be next at the intersection of AI and fintech? Or how do you picture the evolution of the financial sector, maybe especially fintech, in the coming years, thanks to continued innovation in AI. So I think that what, one of the most um, encouraging things for me was actually the CFPB guidelines about AI regulation into decisioning and adverse selection. What you start to see is that when AI is starting to become more familiar parts of the different parts of the ecosystem happened to the regulators, the use of it is going to be more widely widely used. So I will do expect AI models to become a bigger part of the marketing departments of banks, the underwriting departments of banks, the KYC departments of banks, being able to offer you what is the right things for you to do with your money, advice on investments. Hmm. So I think we'll see a world of proactivism by big organizations to allow of having a lot of offering to the person. And then the person is just focusing on making decisions in between different things. And as we go into the future, the ability for these type of banks and algorithms to offer you exactly what you need in the right time, in the right place, is going to become higher and higher and higher. We view that a lot from uh, the world of like Facebook and the different advertisement that you get. But like still, Nate, when you're going to the Chase application, no one is offering you anything. Nothing is really proactive and it's not interactive. So getting these type of capabilities that already exist in the world, it's not science fiction, Mm -hmm. but allowing them to get into the more heavy industries and regulated to offer to people the better ability to make decisions Hmm. is going to be the tomorrow of finance. So you picture this continued role of AI and consumer fintech and finance 
facilitating people's choices, facilitating people's investments, whatever it might be that they're doing now with the help of particular fintech applications, there's probably a role in the future for AI to enhance that. By, 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 by 10 funds. And, and, and that outcome would be, again, financial inclusion. Hmm. If you are actually allowing people to understand that they need to start saving in a different time in their career, you show them very nicely what's going to be the outcome of it. Or, or being able to push that to the place where they have, the, the, the day that they have the extra money that you can now push them to save, rather than just having an advertisement there in a generality or someone who is telling, would have a very big impact on society or, or pushing people to, to check mortgage when they are doing that and offer them proactively a few different options um, that they make it maybe even more suited for their lifestyle, you know, that could be a very big impact. Well, this paints a good picture of what may be to come. And it's especially meaningful from your perspective, given what you've managed to do with AI and lending. So it'll be exciting to see the other applications that continue to take shape. And now for one last question on Pagaya. Are there any takeaways or insights you could share from your experience with the IPO and the way it went down in the unique environment of a couple years ago in 2021? Great question. I think I could write a book on that. <laughs> maybe like, I should. Maybe I should. We definitely were in the, right, in the right spot in the right time to write a book. I don't know if the right time or the right spot for everything. I, I have a very strong belief system in that, so I might be biased. I do believe that the biggest value in Pagaya is continuous learning. We believe that there is no one proof, there is no one outcome. As a research organization, we believe in the continuous ability to learn. What the IPO market brings you that no one else brings you is a mirror every day. Most people are taking that to the negative part, which is, oh, your employee are looking at the stock every day, your investors, you have a scorecard, you don't think about the future. My view is very different. My view is that this is a scorecard for you to see and to consider as a manager, as a CEO, as a leader, you need to have the most amount of data, but to react in the right frequent way, in the right decisive way, and to decide what you want to do with that data. Being able every day to ask the question of what you think about yourself, but what other things about yourself is the biggest gift that I've gotten in my life. I don't think companies could create that amount of quick improvements and learning if they are not a public companies. And again, I told you I'm biased, but my personal opinion would be go be public as soon as you can when you're ready. Hmm. When you're not ready, don't do that. But to think that this is just a small little add-on and just a way to get liquidity for the stock, so not true. It's changing the way companies work. It's becoming much more governed. There is a reason why most of the companies that are long-lasting are public rather than private. So we'll definitely recommend it for entrepreneurs, but they need to know to come ready and to have the stomach. Well, thanks for going into those takeaways and very solid advice on considerations behind going public. And while we could definitely dive in further, it does bring us to the end of the episode where we typically like to ask a question that lets listeners get to know you a bit more. What's a fun fact about you that most people might not know? Um, I was uh, on the Israeli National Helicopter Radio Control team and was, I think, for most of my childhood, since I was like 13, I got my father crazy about buying me a radio control helicopter. He didn't agree to that because it was risky because they are flying very close to you. So I went to my grandmother 
Um, and I and I tricked her to buy that for me for my bar mitzvah. Um, and it worked. And then he became he became advocate on that too. I think what I learned from that is that only repetitive investment and never giving up is the way to get to a success. I was going every weekend twice, three hours in the field to run these helicopters and to improve myself every time just a little bit. And then I made myself to become top 10 in Europe. Wow. But the power of decisive and ability to repeat things over and over, the only way to break real things in life. So oh, that would be my fun thing. A fun fact with a, a great real world lifelong takeaway that I think has made itself evident in what you're doing now. Um, and so Gal, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Nate, for having me. It was really a pleasure and a fun to, to talk to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on social media or give us a review. We appreciate your support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton FinTech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Austria. And until next time, I'm your host, Nate G.